0: Our scripture reading today comes from 1 Corinthians 15. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 10. Uh, Last Sunday, we began a new sermon series on the hope that is ours through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. It's a series that follows the basic outline presented by Tim Keller in his newest book, Hope in Times of Fear. Uh, We saw last week that our certain hope what Peter calls our living hope of an imperishable, undefiled, and unfading inheritance in the coming kingdom of God, that certain hope frees us to rejoice, even in the midst of the trials and tribulations that cause us to grieve and to groan in this present evil age. We also saw that this living hope is ours through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. In other words, we have hope because Jesus rose again on the third day. We have hope because He is risen indeed. Because of this, it's important for us to turn our attention to the fact of the resurrection this morning. The the resurrection is, of course, much more than an historical fact, but it cannot be less than an historical fact. As Keller says, the resurrection is of little use as a mere symbol. Uh, Or it can't just be a metaphor because as Paul himself says, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. To say it another way, if Jesus' resurrection is a mere metaphor, then so too is our hope. Our our hope is only as real, only as substantial, only as bodily as Jesus' resurrection from the dead. And therefore, the first step in our exploration of the hope that's ours through Jesus' resurrection is to see that the resurrection really happened. And that's precisely what we're going to see in this passage. But as we come to listen to it, let's pray that God would help us to understand and to believe what He says to us. Would you pray with me? O good and gracious God, into the dry and thirsty wilderness of our world, you come with streams of living water to quench our thirst, to cleanse our wounds, to refresh our weary souls. Open our eyes to your presence everywhere. Unstop our ears to hear the challenge of your word. Loosen our tongues in songs of praise and fearless witness to your Son. We ask this through our Lord Jesus Christ, your Son, who lives and reigns with you, with the Holy Spirit, one God forever. Amen. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 through 10. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preach to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then He appeared to more than five hundred brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he also appeared to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, Though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Kids, y'all can come on up. All right, guys. Do you know the difference between Christianity and every other religion in the world? That's kind of a big question, isn't it? Well, it's kind of like this. Some of you know how to swim, right? Okay. Uh, But some of you probably still need some help in the pool. Yeah. Fantastic. I'm really glad that you did that. Well, imagine that you still normally need a floaty or you still need to hold on to your mom or dad because you're you're not that strong in the pool yet. So imagine yourself like that. But one day. Oh, yeah. Well, imagine that you really need that floaty. And and one day you're near the pool and you fall in and you're in the deep end. And immediately, you are struggling. Now, it's hard to stay above the water, right? Now, I want you to imagine that there's also another kid in the pool. And they are struggling too. But they see you struggling. And then they say, just just swim over to the side. It's it's up to you. You you have to do this here. This will help. And then they, they hand you a brick. <laughs> now, how helpful would that be if you're struggling in the pool? Not helpful at all. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I mean, that's not helpful at all. They, you can't swim, but they tell you, just swim and, and hold this brick. That's no help at all, right? But imagine, imagine that you're in that pool and you're struggling and you see a grown-up. And what if that grown-up is strong? What if that grown-up already overcame his fear of water and the deep end doesn't bother him? And what if he sees you struggling and he jumps into the pool with you? And he comes and, and instead of handing you a brick, he puts his arm around you and he pulls you to the side of the pool and he lifts you up out of that pool. All you had to do was rest. All you had to do was be still and trust him. You, you see, that's kind of like the difference between every other religion and Christianity. Every other religion says, this is what you need to do. They give you a bunch of rules, they give you some bricks, and they say, here, do these things and God will be happy with you. You have to swim, you have to do the work. E- even other people who don't believe in a God at all, they, they'll hand you a brick and they'll say, here, This is what you need to do to be a good person. You need to follow these rules. You need to be this way. Uh, But for all of them, they're saying to people like you and me, we're struggling people. We're dying people. They're saying, it's really just up to you. You have to do the work. But only Christianity says, look what God did for you. Jesus dying on the cross And then being raised from the dead is God's way of showing you that you don't have to save yourself. Because Him rescuing you from sin and death does not depend on you being very good. It depends on Jesus' goodness. It depends on Jesus' death in your place. It depends on Jesus Himself being raised from the dead, really and truly raised from the dead. Because a dead person can't save anybody else from death, right? But someone who has conquered death can save people. And because Jesus is alive today to save us, that's why we call this good news. Y'all believe it? All right, thanks, you can go back to your seat.
1: All right, if you haven't done so already, open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 15, verses one through 10. That will be our focus this morning, 1 Corinthians 15, verses one through 10. As Sam was saying, we, we started this new sermon series last uh, week, a, a series that's focusing on the hope of the resurrection, a, a series that's, that's designed to help us set our hope on that hope that is ours through the resurrection from Jesus Christ from the dead. And that's exactly what Paul is trying to help the Corinthians do in this passage. Notice how he begins. He, he writes, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. And so here, Paul is is giving the Corinthians a summary of something he's already taught them. He's giving them a summary of the gospel that he had preached to them. And not only the gospel that he had preached to them, but the gospel that they had believed, and, and which he assumes they still believe. And it's that, uh, that, that, it's that aspect of this text that, that gives it its rare significance. Here, for, for one of the few places in the New Testament, we have Paul himself giving us a summary statement of the gospel that he proclaimed. This is Paul's gospel. This is the apostolic gospel in a few bullet points. It's, it's, it's the biblical summary. And so this morning, I want us to to look at this summary, and and I want us to to see at least three conclusions that we can draw from this summation. And what I want us to see is, first, that the gospel is historical. I want us to see, second, that the gospel is reasonable. And then finally, I want us to see that the gospel is gracious. So first, the gospel is historical. Look again at how Paul frames his his summation here in verses 3 through 8. He says, basically, Christ died. Christ was buried, Christ was raised, and Christ appeared. Now, now obviously that's not all that he says, but we have to start there because what we need to see is that Paul's summation of the gospel is built around historical events. About things that happened in, in space and in time. These four historical events are the frame or the, the skeleton around which Paul's gospel is built. Christ died... Christ was buried, Christ was raised, and Christ appeared. That's the the framework of Paul's gospel. But but more than this, more than than just simply seeing that there are some historical events here, we need to understand the significance of this. And this is what Sam was trying to communicate to the kids. Why does it matter that the gospel is historical? I think we must see that the gospel is is built around historical framework because it is that historical framework that sets Christianity, that sets the the Christian gospel apart from every other religion and philosophy, from every other religion and philosophy devised by men as opposed to revealed by God. When men make up gospels, they are the hero of the story. When, When men make up philosophies of life, it is up to them to make good. But here we see that the Christian gospel is essentially different. The Christian gospel begins not with this is what you must do or this is how you must live, but rather the Christian gospel opens with the idea that this is what Jesus did in history for you. This is what Jesus did to reconcile you to the Father. It's not this is what you must do, but this is what has been done for you. And that has profound significance. It really can't be overstated. The the difference between this is what you must do and this is what has been done for you by Jesus is the difference between a hopeless project of self-salvation and the living hope of a sure salvation. Think about it. If the gospel consists merely of instructions, or, or if the resurrection is merely an illustration, then you are your only hope. And you aren't a very good hope. Not because you are as bad as, as any person could possibly be. By, by God's common grace, that's actually not true. You're not as bad as you could possibly be. Actually, no one is as bad as they could possibly be. As bad as some people are, God's common grace is still restraining them. The evil of mankind has, has not yet been put on full display. As as horrible and, and as evil as it has been, men could be worse apart from God. And God's common grace is actually restraining our sinfulness. He is, he is actually maintaining some semblance of order in this yet chaotic universe. And so it's not that people are as bad as they could possibly be. The The truth is that that. That many people are are decent. You know them. Your your non-believing neighbors, your your secular neighbors who are who are good people, who who live decent lives. They, They do good things, generous things, by human standards. But on the last day, we won't be judged by human standards. On the last day, we won't be measured against the human mean. What does the psalmist say? He says, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. He doesn't say that the, that the one who is decent will be okay. He doesn't say that the, that the one who is even good by human standards will, will be okay. The one who's good when, when compared to his neighbor, or the one who's, who's good when compared to humanity at large, he'll be alright. That's not what the psalmist says. The psalmist says, he who has clean hands and a pure heart, that is the one who shall ascend the hill of the Lord. And that is why the psalmist also says, if you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? That is, if if God keeps a record of our iniquities, if God keeps a record of our sins in his ledger, and then then gives to us, according to our works, what we deserve, then no one will be left standing after his judgment. Even the the best of, of people that you know will fail that test if God gives us according to our works, if he gives us what we deserve, then we are left utterly and and completely without hope. For while we can measure up to a human standard, we cannot measure up to God's. This is the point that Paul is driving home when he says in his letter to the Galatians, all who rely on works of the law are under a curse, for cursed is everyone, who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law. Do you hear, do you hear what he's, he's getting at? He's saying those who rely on the law will inevitably be condemned. They will inevitably come under the curse of the law because the only way to be justified by the law, the only way to be justified by our works, the only way to, to achieve that blessing for ourselves is to obey the law, to do all things written in the book of the law without qualification, without exception. It's not to do more than your neighbor. It's not to do more than just simply your own bad works. The, the only way to, to attain God's blessing, the only way to be justified through the law, is to keep it perfectly. To abide by all things written in the book of the law. And that is a standard that none of us can meet. As Paul says in his letter to the Romans, under the law, none is righteous. Under the law, not one measures up. All, without exception, have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And that is why the historicity of Jesus' death and resurrection is so vitally important. It is the story of Jesus' death and resurrection that that separates this Christian gospel from every other religion and philosophy. It is the death and and resurrection of Jesus Christ as a historical fact. If if Jesus' death and resurrection are merely a myth, if they are merely a a fable, if if it's merely a metaphor, if all we have is the idea of Easter, much like the idea of the phoenix, The the idea that that after the winter comes spring. The idea that that after devastation there can be a new beginning. If that is all that we have, then we do not have hope. Because the idea of Easter, the the metaphor of the resurrection, leaves the crushing burden of self-salvation squarely on our shoulders. It may encourage us to get up and try again. Well, well that can be a new beginning. We can turn over a new leaf. It, it may encourage us to, to try again many times, but it can't offer any actual help. The burden is still ours to bear alone, and no matter how many times we get up, no matter how many times we, we start again, that is a burden we will never be able to bear. Remember the psalmist. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities... O Lord, who could stand? In our own strength, none is righteous, no, not one. But if he is risen, if he was raised from the dead on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, as Paul says, then salvation belongs to the Lord, and it is bestowed as his gracious gift. To be received not by works, but by the empty hands of faith alone. That's why the historicity of the of the resurrection matters. That's, that's why Paul builds his, his summation of the gospel around this framework of historical facts. Christ died. Christ was buried. Christ was raised on the third day. And after his resurrection, he appeared to many, to Cephas and to the 12, to James, to Paul, and even to 500 at one time. These are historical facts. And that they happened in space and time makes all the difference. Because without these facts, there is no gospel. But with these facts with these events that took place in space and time, we have a gospel that is far better than anything we could have ever asked or imagined. And that is why we must forcefully resist all, all temptations today, all liberal pushes to, to reduce the resurrection to a mere idea, to, to expunge Christianity of this, this supernatural, to make it more palatable to modern minds. That is utter foolishness. That is not to, to save Christianity, it is to destroy it. Christianity is built in history. It's built around historical events. It is built around the fact that Jesus died. Jesus was buried. Jesus rose again from the dead and he appeared to many and he is now seated at the right hand of the Father from where he will come again to judge the living and the dead. Those are historical events. They took place in space and time and they are the very foundation of the gospel that we believe. And, of course, this brings us to our second point. Because these are historical events, it is reasonable to to believe them. The gospel is not only historical, it is also reasonable. In fact, Keller puts it this way. He says, because Christianity is a historical faith, it is also a reasonable one. And we see that, too, in this text. 1 Corinthians 15 is brimming with reasons to believe. However, before we we look at the reasons to believe here in the text, I I actually want us to, to look at the reason that's given to us by the text itself. It is sometimes suggested that the early church created sort of the legend of Jesus' resurrection because they wanted to you know, lend uh, credence to their claims that, that their teaching had, had divine authority. And so many decades later, they came up with this story that, well, maybe if we just tell people Jesus rose from the dead, it will, it will, it will give us uh, more authority. Because actually, you know, claiming that your founder rose from the dead, that's, that's a pretty good way to, to say, hey, God is for us. And so they made these stories up many years later, many decades later, it is suggested. But actually, this text is is itself an important piece of evidence against that claim. Look again at at verse 3. Paul writes, I deliver to you as of first importance what I also received. In other words, Paul is saying that the gospel he preached was not his gospel. It's not, it's not a gospel he made up. On the contrary, it was something that he himself had received. And these verses actually support that claim. Now, I, I know it's dangerous to wade too deeply into the, the weeds of, of textual criticism, but just, just bear with me for a moment here. Right, because what we have here uh, is, is Paul quoting a creed that was already in use in the early church. Scholars of all different theological persuasions recognize that that verses 3 through 7 are not an original composition from Paul. Paul is here quoting a creed. He's quoting something that was already in circulation, something that he knew and something that he expected his readers to know. We we know this because the the language that Paul uses here is not his own. This this doesn't fit his style of writing. There there are many phrases here, such as, on the third day and the 12, that that Paul doesn't use elsewhere in his his writings. And so it is is believed by, by most scholars, both liberal and conservative, that Paul is here quoting a creed that was already in use in the early church. And think about what that means. It means that by the time Paul wrote 1 Corinthians, which was maybe 15 or 20 years after Jesus' crucifixion, already in those initial few decades, there's a creedal summary of the gospel in the early church that is recognized by many. A creedal summary that sets forth Jesus' death, burial, resurrection, and appearances as historical facts. This clearly demonstrates that the story of Jesus' resurrection was not developed a long time after Jesus' crucifixion. On the contrary, the church was confessing the historical fact of Jesus' resurrection almost immediately after his death. Almost immediately, the church begins to recite these historical facts as the framework of their living hope. Now, that doesn't prove that the resurrection really happened, But it puts the skeptic in a very difficult position. If you deny the historicity of Jesus' resurrection, then you have to come up with some other historical explanation for the undeniable historical reality that the church was confessing his resurrection as a historical fact almost immediately. And that is simply not easy to do. But of course, the church's nearly immediate confession is not the only reason. <laughs> it's not the only reason to believe in the resurrection. The, the creed itself that Paul is quoting is, is filled with reasons to believe. Look again at what he, he says. Paul says, uh, he, as I said, he, he lists here four historical events, but, but it's generally recognized that two of these events are, are fundamental and two of them are, are supplementary, if I may put it that way. The, the crucifixion and the resurrection are fundamental. The burial and the appearances are Supportive, And so first we have the, uh, the burial as supporting the, the claim that Jesus died. Now it's nearly impossible to believe that, that the Roman soldiers failed to kill Jesus. If the Roman soldiers were good at anything, they were good at killing people. They knew how to do it. And so the, the idea that maybe Jesus just swooned is, is almost unbelievable on its face. Roman, Roman soldiers knew how to kill people and they knew when someone was dead. It's so unlikely that they got that wrong, that it it almost doesn't need answering. But remember, this is why they broke the legs of the two men who were crucified alongside Jesus. They they knew they weren't dead, they knew these men were not yet dead, and they wanted to speed along the process. It's also why they pierced Jesus' side, because they thought he was dead, but just to confirm, just to double check, they pierced his side to, to prove that he was dead. But as hard as it is to believe that the Roman soldiers failed to kill Jesus, to to believe that he had merely swooned on the cross, that belief is, is put beyond reasonable doubt when you consider that he was buried. The Jews took burial seriously. And they they did it thoroughly. And we know that they didn't skimp on the process when it came to to Jesus, where we're told of the details in the the Gospels. And therefore, Jesus' burial lends indisputable support to the claim that Jesus died upon the cross. And it is that indisputable evidence of Jesus' death and of his burial that also gives us a context to, to understand the claim that he was raised to claim that Jesus was raised is to claim that the tomb where Jesus was buried was empty following the resurrection. Paul doesn't state it here explicitly, but he, but he, points, it, he points us to it in, uh, you know, uh, in, in unambiguous terms. The tomb was empty. Jesus was buried, and then he was raised, just as the Gospels say. And so the first piece of evidence we have here is that the tomb was empty. But, of course, the the empty tomb by itself is not enough. I don't know if you know this, but, but actually most scholars today accept the empty tomb. They accept the reality of the empty tomb because there's just simply too much evidence for it. Even those who do not believe in the resurrection, even those who believe that the resurrection is beyond the pale of credibility, they still acknowledge that the tomb was almost certainly empty. And this is why Paul doesn't stop with the empty tomb, but he goes on to say that Jesus appeared. He appeared to a long list of of witnesses. Just as his burial supported the claim that he died, so his appearances support the claim that he was raised on the third day. And it's important for us to, to see this. It's important for us to see how strong this support is. Keller puts it this way. He writes, we are not talking about a single uh, sighting or or several appearances in one remote location that could have been staged. He says, on the contrary, a large number of people across a diversity of circumstances testify that they had seen the risen Lord. Apologist Peter Williams puts it this way. He says, the resurrected Jesus is recorded as appearing in Judea and in Galilee, in town and in countryside, indoors and outdoors in the morning and in the evening, by prior appointment and without prior appointment, close and distant, on a hill and by a lake, to groups of men and to groups of women, to individuals and to groups of more than 500, sitting, standing, walking, and always talking. These are the appearances of the Lord, when you think about it, Jesus appeared in so many different locations, in so many different ways, under so many different circumstances, and, and Paul tells us that, that most of these witnesses are still alive. Just think about what that means. What's he, he's, he's challenging the, the skeptics to go and talk to them. Go and talk to these eyewitnesses. They'll tell you what they saw. They'll tell you that they were there. It's why he could say to, to King Festus when he was on trial, he says, these things were not done in a corner. Remember the story? It comes at the end of Acts. We'll get there in about a decade. So, um, But but when Paul was defending himself before Festus, he openly declared the facts of Jesus' death and resurrection. He, he openly proclaimed this gospel even when he was on trial. But when Festus heard it, when, when he heard Paul proclaiming the, the, the historical reality of the resurrection, Festus said to Paul, you, your great learning is driving you out of your mind. He thought he was... Mad, he he thought he was insane, but Paul said to him, No, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I am speaking true and rational words. For the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly, for I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice, for this was not done in a corner. Think about that. Speaking to a government official Paul can say of both Jesus' death and resurrection, the king knows about these things. The king knows what I'm talking about. You've said that to someone before, I'm sure. At some point, you know, someone you were talking to was denying what you knew they knew to be true just because they didn't want to believe it. And you said to them, come on, you know this is true. We speak that way when when the person we're talking to is, is denying the patently obvious. And that's exactly what Paul is here saying to the king. He says, king, you know these things are true. I know you don't want to believe them. But you know this is true because it was done openly, it was done publicly, it was not done in some dark private corner. Jesus died, Jesus was buried, Jesus was raised, and he appeared again to many witnesses at many times and in many different ways. These things happened in broad daylight, so to speak. They are historical facts, they are true, and therefore it is reasonable to believe them. Does that mean that the resurrection has been proven beyond any shadow of a doubt? Well, that's a a tricky question. It depends on what you mean by by prove. No historical event can be empirically proven the way that something can be tested in a laboratory. Keller says it this way He says, We we can't know that William the Conqueror invaded England in 1066 in exactly the same way that we know a compound liquefies at such and such a temperature. That's not the way history works. However, he adds, once we make that distinction, once we, once we understand the, the nature of historical events, we can say, we can say that we know that things in history happened if there is a great deal of historical evidence that they did. We're not skeptics about history. We can know that things happened because we see their footprint in the, the course of, of human events and when we see that footprint, when we see the, the evidence that these things happened, we can say, yes, we know that that happened. And the resurrection is just such an event. We can say we know it happened in history because there is a great deal of historical evidence that it did. And this means that, if, that belief in the resurrection is not a blind leap in the dark. But on the contrary, belief in the resurrection as a historical event is entirely rational. But that being said, merely believing in the resurrection as a historical event is not enough. Christian faith necessarily entails belief in the historical fact of the resurrection. If you don't believe that the resurrection happened, whatever your faith is, it isn't Christian faith. Whatever your faith is, it isn't faith in the the Christian gospel. The Christian gospel proclaims that Jesus rose again from the dead bodily in space and time. And so Christian faith necessarily entails belief in the historical fact of the resurrection. But there is more to Christian faith than just this. Christian faith must also include an understanding and an an acknowledgement, a a personal appropriation of the significance of Jesus' resurrection. And this is our third and final point. Look again at how Paul describes Jesus' death and resurrection. Both times he uses a curious phrase. He, He says that Jesus died and Jesus rose again in accordance with the scriptures. Again, think about what that means. Why, why does Paul add that phrase? Why does he say that these have, things happen in accordance with the Scriptures? It, it means that Jesus' death and resurrection are not merely historical events. They are historical events, but they are more than that. They, they are the fulfillment of God's plan of redemption, the plan that he spoke beforehand through his Prophets. In and through Jesus' death and resurrection, our redemption, the the redemption first promised in the garden, through his death and resurrection, our redemption was fully and finally accomplished. It has not yet been fully applied. As we saw last Sunday, our our salvation is still in process. We we still live in this present evil age. We still long for that day when, when these things will be made fully known But it is accomplished. It is ready to be revealed, as as Peter says in uh, his first letter. There's nothing left to be done. As Jesus himself said upon the cross, the work is finished. And this is why belief in Jesus' resurrection is not like belief in any other historical event believing that that William the Conqueror came, or believing that that George Washington crossed the the Delaware in in 1776. These things may inform your life in in some vague way. Knowing history does actually shape your life. It shapes how you live and and why you do what you do here in the present. It has value. It It can shape your life in some way. But believing in Jesus' resurrection doesn't merely shape your life. It gives life. The one who receives with faith the gospel of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, the one who, who receives that these things happen in accordance with the scripture, that one is born again to a living hope through Jesus' resurrection from the dead. We, we see this clearly in Paul's recounting of his own conversion story there in verses 8 through 10. Look again at what Paul, uh, or what uh, is said. Paul writes, Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of all the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace towards me was not in vain. In Ephesians 2, Paul famously tells the the Ephesians that they were saved by grace through faith, which itself was the gracious gift of God. But well, here he is, in effect, saying exactly the same thing of himself. He's saying, that is true of me, too. I was saved by the effectual grace of God. I was a persecutor of the church, but God shed his grace on me, and I was transformed. The persecutor of the church became a, proclam- a proclaimer of the gospel. The one who was persecuting became one of the persecuted That's the transformation that we see in Paul's life. This this zealous persecutor of the church when when Jesus appeared to him on the road to Damascus. He was given not merely faith in the resurrection as a historical event. He was given faith in the resurrection as the fulfillment of the Scriptures, as the fulfillment of God's plan of redemption. He came to see the risen Lord as the Messiah, as the, the promised Christ as the one who brings salvation to the people of God. And that changed everything. In that moment, he was born again to a living hope and became an ambassador of that hope to others. And so the question that we must ask ourselves this morning is this. Do you believe in the resurrection? First, do you believe in the resurrection as a historical event? Yes. But more than this, Do you believe in the resurrection as the historical event that happened in accordance with the Scriptures? Do you believe in the resurrection as the the climax of, of God's redemptive history, the event through which all those who believe are born again to a living hope, a real and reasonable hope, a hope as real and as reasonable as the resurrection itself? I think that's the truth that most of us, most of us have believed. And most of us continue to believe. To use Paul's language, this is the gospel we received and this is the gospel in which we now stand. But it's also true that we need to set our hope on this gospel again and again and again. Because we all too easily forget. In the midst of the trials and the tribulations of this life, we can get distracted. In the midst of the trials and the tribulations of this life, we can be entangled by our fears and our anxieties. And in such times of groaning, in such times of grief, we need to set our hope afresh on the hope that is ours through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. In fact, Paul knows this. It's why he begins, Now I would remind you. This is the gospel he preached to the Corinthians. This is the gospel that they believe. This is the gospel that he assumes they still believe. And yet he reminds them of it because he knows they need the reminder. In the midst of of this present evil age, they need to again and again and again be reminded of the gospel that they might set their hope on it. And so do we. And so my challenge to you is simple. Remember this gospel. Preach it to yourselves and preach it to one another. Jesus died, Jesus was buried, Jesus was raised, and Jesus appeared, all in accordance with the Scriptures. And because he did, because these events happened in space and time, we now have a living hope of an inheritance in the coming kingdom that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for us, even as we are being kept for it by God's power through faith. This is the hope that is ours through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And because we have such a hope, that's why we call this good news. Do you believe that? Amen. Let's believe it together. Father God, we thank you. For your grace, we we thank you for the gift of your son. We thank you that, that he entered into space and time in human flesh. We thank you that he lived, that he died, that he was buried, that he rose again, that he appeared to many, that he ascended to your right hand where he now reigns over all things and from where he will come again to establish his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. Father God, help us to believe these things. Help us to set our hope on these things that we might live out of that hope in this present evil age, the praise of your glory. We pray it in Jesus' name, amen. Let us-